Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And names Westgate Mall suspects from CCTV footage and UN inspectors begin destroying Syrian chemical weapons. In economics news, BMW says the labor situation in South Africa remains unstable. And in sports news, Ghanaian soccer star Kevin Prince Boateng in hot water. But first the news with Wisani Makubele. Good morning. The process of destroying Syria's chemical weapons program has begun. That's according to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The work which began on Sunday is in compliance with a resolution unanimously adopted by the UN Security Council last month demanding the destruction of Syria's chemical weapons stockpiles and production facilities. Don Bob has more. OPCW says its international inspectors, supported by a team from the UN, are monitoring, verifying and reporting on Syria's compliance with this demand. The agency says that on Sunday, Syrian personnel used cutting torches and angle grinders to destroy or disable a range of items, including missile warheads, aerial bombs, as well as mixing and filling equipment. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons says the process will continue in the coming days. The Libyan al-Qaeda suspect captured by a U.S. Navy SEAL team several days ago is currently being held aboard a U.S. naval vessel where he is being interrogated. The place of interrogation means he can be held indefinitely under U.S. law, Mel Frigberg reports. A team of military intelligence and justice department interrogators has been sent to the USS San Antonio in international waters to question Libyan terror suspect Abu Anas al-Libi. He was captured in Libya over the weekend. Al-Libi was indicted in 2000 for his involvement in the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Africa. He is currently being held in military custody aboard the Navy ship under the laws of war. This means that a person can be captured and held indefinitely as an enemy combatant. The U.S. says a raid conducted by its military in Somalia targeted a top commander in the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. The pre-dawn raid on Friday by elite U.S. military forces targeted Abdi Qadir, Mohammed Abdi Qadir, who also goes by the name Ikrimah. Ikrimah is closely associated with now-deceased Al-Qaeda operatives Harun Fazul and Saleh Naban. They have all been accused by the U.S. as having played roles in the 1998 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi and in the 2002 attacks on a hotel and airline in Mombasa, all in Kenya. The raid on Barawe in Somalia came after Al-Shabaab carried out a massacre two weeks ago at a shopping center in Nairobi. At least 61 civilians, six soldiers and five assailants were killed in the assault. 
Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan has spoken out against the acts of terrorist groups. He has been delivering the third annual Desmond Tutu International Peace Lecture at the University of Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa last night. Annan says these acts are a threat to security and peace. As the recent terrorist attacks in Nigeria and Kenya have underlined, extremism and proliferation of armed groups pose a serious threat for peace and security. So how can we address these challenges and create the peaceful, cohesive societies to enable every individual to thrive and live in dignity? There is, of course, no single answer. The challenge is to deepen democracy and build effective and legitimate institutions grounded in the rule of law and respect for human rights. Police in Madagascar have taken 35 suspects into custody in connection with the mob lynching of two Europeans and a local man accused of killing a young boy on a tourist island. Authorities refused to give further details about the investigations. Residents of Nozibi Island went on a rampage last Thursday after the death of an 8-year-old local boy. There were rumors that foreigners were involved. A mob found a Frenchman and a Franco-Italian and burnt them on a beach ringed by bars and hotels. The uncle of the dead boy was also killed and burnt later the same day. Nozibi is Madagascar's main tourist magnet, but the island is also notorious for being a hotbed for sex tourism. And finally, the director of the Malaria Control and Evaluation Partnership in Africa, Duncan Earl, says strides in malaria prevention and control have helped curb the spread of the life-threatening disease. Earl has been speaking on the sidelines of the Initiative on Malaria Conference underway in Durban, South Africa. He says while initially nets were only distributed to pregnant women and children under five years old, this has now changed to universal coverage. Not only do they offer a barrier, the netting, to prevent you from getting bit, but if you get bitten, the female mosquito, when she bites you, takes on two and a half times her body weight in blood. She cannot fly. She must rest. And for some reason, female mosquitoes like to rest on vertical surface, and that's why you have insecticide on the net. If she does get into that net and bites you, she still has to find a place to land. She lands on the net and she dies. That's the news for now. Back to Lulu Gabu with Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Wisani. As investigations intensify in into last month's terror attack in Nairobi, Kenyan security agencies have released closed-circuit television footage showing the identity of four suspects of the terror attack. They are both Kenyans of Somali origin. According to Kenyan police, five other suspects have been arrested in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and are under police interrogation. From Nairobi, Mwaiki Konyo reports. This is the most significant information to emerge from the government and investigators since the terror siege at the Westgate shopping mall last month. Since then, there has been more questions than answers from the Kenyan public on the identity of the terror suspects, including the cluster performance of the Kenyan security organs in apprehending the suspects and unraveling the mystery surrounding the terror attack. Details of the terror suspects have been sketchy and rather confusing. 
Two commissions of inquiry established by the government to investigate the tragic event have also failed to issue a public statement on the tragedy. Kenyan police and the military have been under heavy public criticism for security lapses in Nairobi, a northeastern part of the country bordering Somalia. President Uhuru Kenyatta has initiated a major government overhaul in the security setup in an effort to appease the public anxiety following the deadly assault. The immigration department has been under heavy scrutiny. And I really hope that when the president is shaking this thing up, and I expect him to shake up his, his government, he should point some fingers to the, to the immigration department. How did these people get their visas? How did they enter at the entry points? There is nothing to indicate that there was adequate preparation to revamp security along the border towns in order to make sure that we do not suffer uh, as much as uh, what has happened over the last uh, one and a half years. There has also been claims of police and military involvement in shop looting during the terror siege. Shop owners, banks and supermarkets at the shopping mall have reported heavy losses during the terror siege. Two parliamentary committees of defense and foreign affairs have begun public inquiry into the atrocious attack. Kenyan parliamentarians have also urged the government to close down all refugees camps in Kenya, including the largest Dadaab refugee camp, as they are the breeding ground for the Al-Shabaab militants. We are no longer accepting that refugees anymore, because the truth of the matter is that they have become haven for breeding al-shabaab we are going to stop those firewoods that they're being supplied with that water they're being supplied with we are telling unchr the time has come that these people must go and they must go to their area or any other country who thinks that they can do that job let them carry these people but despite public criticism over the official handling of the matter Authorities have now released the closed-circuit television footage showing the identity of four men of Somali origin searching premises of the Westgate shopping mall. They are shown to be heavily armed at the entrance of the shopping mall. And as Kenyans continue to raise their concerns on their personal security following the recent deadly terror attack, the cabinet secretary in charge of national security, Joseph Olelenku, says the government has heightened security arrangements at all strategic points. Security has been heightened uh, across the country in all ports of entry and in many other areas. And therefore, it is not specifically targeted to that, but it's uh, a normal uh, security ongoing to ensure that the country is secure. But according to a security analyst in Nairobi, Rashid Ahmed, the government, including the Kenyan public, should be more vigilant and try to understand how the extremists work to destabilize the country. We should not only be vigilant, but we should now begin to invest in, in actually understanding the how this how this organization works. We need to, uh, you know, uh, really, really improve our intelligence gathering system, which is completely in disarray. And I think we need to also uh, you know, invest in good policing tactics. Because remember, we should not do the, the work for the extremists by, you know, antagonizing the Muslim communities, by creating a backlash. We should be able to work with the, with the Muslim communities. And I think uh, there, there is a lot of anger within the Somali community as well against what has happened. And this is the opportunity now for the government really to reach out and create a real partnership in which the government will be able to obtain good intelligence so that these terror cells are disrupted. And according to the Kenya Red Cross Society, in addition to the 67 people killed in the attack, a further that nine others are still missing two weeks after the terror attack. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi.
Kenya's Interior Ministry has handed over journalist Walter Barasa's warrant of arrest from the International Criminal Court to the country's High Court. The warrant against Barasa was issued by the Hague-based court for alleged bribery of witnesses. Meanwhile, 130 civil society groups from across Africa have called on African members of the International Criminal Court in a letter made public yesterday to affirm their support for the court at an extraordinary summit of the African Union. The meeting is scheduled for Friday and Saturday this week in Addis Ababa. Ethiopia, Sarah Kimani reports. Brazil is wanted in The Hague for allegedly trying to bribe witnesses who are to testify before the ICC in the case against Deputy President William Ruto. He has denied the accusations that he attempted to bribe three witnesses and has instead accused the office of the prosecutor of victimizing him for his refusal to testify against Ruto. As per the provisions of the Kenyan laws, the government is required to submit international warrants to a magistrate's court, which makes a determination after examining the extradition documents and hearing from the accused. ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, during the unsealing of the arrest warrant, said Baraza is needed in the Hague court urgently. The issuance of an arrest warrant in this case should be a warning to others who may be involved in obstructing the course of justice through intimidating, harassing, bribing, or attempting to bribe ICC witnesses. My office will continue to do everything it can to ensure that witnesses are able to present their evidence before the court without fear. Witnesses who have courage to come forward to testify deserve no less. The ability of the court to determine the truth in the Kenyan cases depends on the willingness of witnesses to come forward and present their evidence in the courtroom. I admire and I'm grateful for the moral courage displayed by the witnesses involved in these cases. Through my office, I will do all within my power to protect the integrity of our cases and ensure that justice is allowed to run its course unobstructed. Meanwhile, the groups from 34 countries said African countries should support the ICC as a crucial court of last resort, including for its current cases on crimes committed during Kenya's post-election violence in 2007-2008. There are fears that some African ICC members may be considering withdrawing from the ICC's treaty, the Rome Statute, this week when African leaders meet in Ethiopia for a special African Union summit. In May this year, during celebrations to mark 50 years of African Union, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Haile Mariam Desalgne stated the continent's displeasure with the court. Yeah. Um, as far as the ICC is concerned, I think uh, the African leaders has come to the consensus that uh, the process ICC is conducting in Africa has a flaw. The intention uh, was to avoid any kind of impunity and uh, so ill governance uh, and the crime, uh, but uh, now the process has degenerated into some kind of race hunting rather than uh, an objective of uh, taking care of 
those crimes and as well as uh, impunities. The civil society organizations argue that African countries played an active role at the negotiations to establish the court and that 34 countries, a majority of the African Union members, are ICC members. John Jomue, a human rights lawyer in Kenya, agrees and states that African governments have sought the ICC to try grave crimes committed on their territories and that Africans are among the highest level ICC officials as well as serving judges. I do not agree. First of all, um, to accuse the ICC of being racist because um, all the cases currently uh, in the court are from Africa is to be dishonest because we need to break this down. The cases that are, the countries that are currently facing cases in the ICC are um, Kenya, Uganda, the DRC, the Central African Republic, uh, the Republic of Mali, and uh, Sudan and Libya. Out of those cases, um, uh, Uganda, uh, the DRC, and the Central African Republic, and Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali have all been referred to the ICC by those, the governments of those countries themselves. Um, in the case of uh, Libya and, and, and uh, Sudan, those cases have been referred to the United Nations by the United Nations Security Council, according to the Rome Statute. Kenya is even an, an even more special country. Because we must remind ourselves that it is the AU that uh, uh, set, uh, appointed uh, Kofi Annan and his team uh, who uh, set in motion, the process that is set in motion after the post-election violence is the one that led us uh, to the ICC. So it is the AU that indirectly referred the Kenyan cases to the ICC. And so for the same AU to go back and say this is uh, a European court and it is racist, it is uh, uh, being economical with the truth. The African Union meeting follows a motion passed by Kenya's upper and lower houses of parliament last month to take the country out of the ICC because of the trials of its president Uhuru Kenyatta and the deputy William Ruto. The parliamentary decision has yet to be formally turned into a bill, but Kenyan officials have been seeking lobbying for a broader withdrawal of African states from the Hague Court. I believe I'm setting a stage to redeem the image of the Republic of Kenya. I'm setting a stage to defend the Constitution of Kenya 2010. And Mr. Speaker, it will set the stage for the end to the culture of impunity, both at home and abroad. Because the culture of impunity, Mr. Speaker, transcends boundaries. Institutions and organizations outside this country will and at times can play and introduce the culture of impunity. All eight countries that are currently have cases at the ICC are in Africa. In May, African Union member states voted 53 to 1 in favor of asking the ICC to drop the cases against Kenya and Ruto so that they would be dealt with instead in Kenya's national courts. Minuela The Hague, the second witness against Ruto and Sun, took to the stand. Sarah Kimani, Kenya.
A joint team of United Nations and international inspectors have begun to oversee the process of dismantling and destroying Syria's chemical weapons production program. Martin Nasirki, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's spokesperson, made the announcement to reporters in New York. Show and Bryce Pease reports. It's been just over a week since a unanimous decision in the UN Security Council. A rare moment of consensus on Syria that has inspectors working quickly to dismantle the country's vast stocks of chemical weapons. Martin Nesirki speaking yesterday. The process of destroying Syria's chemical weapons program began yesterday under the supervision of experts from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, supported by the United Nations. Syrian personnel used cutting torches and angle grinders to destroy or disable a range of items, and these included missile warheads, aerial bombs, and mixing and filling equipment, and the process will continue in the coming days. The Security Council's adoption of a resolution in September calling for the speedy implementation of procedures drawn up by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was seen as one step closer to bringing the warring parties to the negotiating table, something the UN chief has hoped to achieve by mid-November. The Secretary-General continues to believe that uh, this can take place in mid-November and it's his firm determination to seek to make that happen. Everybody knows that it is not difficult, that it is not easy, that it is going to be difficult to bring the sides to the table. And I think that uh, Mr. Brahimi is expressing uh, his concerns in that regard. But the intention is very clear that uh, we want to push for mid-November. Mr. Brahimi is the UN Special Envoy on Syria who's been leading efforts to stop the carnage in the country that has claimed well in excess of 100,000 lives according to UN estimates. Nesirki again called on countries that have influence to get the role players in a room in Geneva. All those countries or parties that have an influence on the, the different uh, parties within Syria need to exercise that influence to ensure that uh, we can have uh, a, a single opposition delegation and the government delegation at uh, such a conference. The United States in a surprise move welcomed Syria's acquiescence to the Security Council resolution with Secretary of State John Kerry calling it a good beginning. Sherman Bricepies at the United Nations, New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Desmond Tutu International Peace Lecture was held last night in Cape Town, South Africa. This in honor of anti-apartheid stalwart and cleric, Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who celebrated his birthday yesterday. The lecture was conceived as an annual opportunity to take stock of issues critical to the sustainability of our species and our planet. It is an opportunity to assess our adherence to the values of respect, compassion, fairness, Ubuntu and celebration of diversity. The guest lecture was delivered by former UN Secretary-General Kofi Annan. Channel Africa's Luanda Maume reports. 
Peace Laureate and former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan delivered the third annual Desmond Dudu International Peace Lecture at the University of the Western Cape in Belleville, Cape Town, South Africa. Annan's lecture was centered around the theme, Holistic Approach to Security, Development and Peace. Man of the Hour, Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, started by thanking all those who made the time to send him good wishes and attending the evening peppered with humor that has become his signature. Say a very, very big thank you to you. The fact that you have come out in such large numbers demonstrates the high regard, quite rightly, that you have for tonight's um, lecturer. Uh, what, sh- what should I say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guest lecturer started by outlining what he believes should be the intended outcome of the lecture. The goal of these lectures is to provide an opportunity to discuss how we can build societies which are cohesive and inclusive and reduce conflict on a continent that has suffered so much from deadly violence and inter-ethnic strife, it is essential that we never lose sight of that ambition. It is a goal which Archbishop Tutu has worked for all his life with unmatched persistence and passion. He hailed Archbishop's bravery and ability to speak with principle on the matters that are deemed uncomfortable to many. Desmond has always found the courage, no matter how uncomfortable or dangerous, to speak truth to power. By giving voice to the excluded and persecuted, he has become a symbol for justice and reconciliation. He reminds us all of our common humanity and spirituality. Anand says Dudu has been an inspiration that has led South Africa to transcend unprecedented challenges to be where it is today and has served to inspire an even greater need for transformation in the entire continent of Africa. And nowhere has this impact been more significant or transformative than in this country. In two decades, South Africa has overcome apartheid to become an important regional and global player. You have a reasonably healthy economy and a young and entrepreneurial society whose influence extends far beyond your borders. These remarkable changes have both mirrored and helped drive progress across our continent. He said despite all the strife that has befallen Africa in the past, the endowment of natural resources and human capital provide the continent with a unique opportunity to be the sole arbiter that will determine its own destiny and concluded by sending a hearty plea to young people. Africa is a continent with tremendous natural resources, but none more than the talent of its young people. As I know from my discussions with them, and I speak to them often, they care deeply about our world and are actively engaged in fostering positive changes in their local communities. We need to do more to provide the conditions where their creativity and potential can flourish and where they can have a voice in finding solutions. And if I may speak directly to the students and the young ones amongst us, 
let me add this plea. You are the first generation of true global citizens. We need you to step up, take responsibility, and above all, we need your leadership. With courage and vision, Africa can develop the institutions and qualities of leadership that will ensure a stable, prosperous, and equitable society. But my dear friends, we must always remember that cohesive and healthy societies rest on three pillars. The first is peace and security. The second is development. And the third is rule of law and respect for human rights. Finally, my dear friends, let me wish both Desmond and Leah a very happy birthday. Thank you. For Channel Africa, I am Luanda Maume. South Africa is this week marking National Human Trafficking Awareness Week with a sensational six-day exhibition at the Freedom Park in the country's capital, Pretoria. The exhibition kicked off this past weekend featuring Krishna Fisser, a survivor of human trafficking, sharing her experiences to the audience. Various workshops will also be held throughout the week discussing the different types of trafficking, causes and its consequences. All proceeds generated from the event will be donated to Traffic Proof, a non-governmental organization educating and empowering human trafficking victims. More from Roxanne Rawlins, spokesperson at Traffic Proof. Human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerable people for the financial gain of others. So it's often run by huge syndicates around the world, which South Africa definitely is a part of. So the trafficking of persons is for sexual exploitation, it's for cheap labor, it's for begging on the streets. That is a very popular one in South Africa where people are trafficked just to beg on the street. When they are held against their will, prostitutes as well, which we often see as uh, free agents, but these people as well are held against their will, forced to work in inhumane conditions for no pay, and there's a lot of abuse and torture that's attached to that as well. Are people generally aware of human trafficking, and do they take it seriously? I don't think so. People are definitely not aware, and that's why this week is so important for South Africans, because sometimes when we are talking about these things, the response is, oh, is this happening in the world? And even more so, this is definitely not happening in South Africa, but we definitely are one of the countries where trafficking is most prevalent. As part of the exhibitions at the National Human Trafficking Awareness Week, there are a number of workshops that are hosted. What exactly is being discussed at these workshops? We're looking at basic definitions and concepts of trafficking in persons. I think that we need to set a base standard because people are not sure. So we're just looking at what it is. We're looking at the importance and ethical challenges in reporting human trafficking as well because we want the media to be involved. And obviously the media is an important role player in terms of human trafficking awareness. But how can we do this? in a way that is still safe for the survivors of trafficking, the victims of trafficking. We have the identification and red flagging, how to expose the subversive nature of human trafficking. One of the other workshops is Traffic Proof, which is training people how to go into schools and into communities and let people know what trafficking is, how they can identify people who are being trafficked, how they can identify signs of trafficking, and also how to report it. Because sometimes the local public, they're not sure how they can 
report crimes, they're not sure what trafficking looks like, but it's important for them to have that information if we're going to work together as a community. And we also understand that all the proceeds from this exhibition will be donated towards Traffic Proof. What is Traffic Proof and how do we continue to empower and raise awareness about human trafficking post the Awareness Week? Traffic Proof is just a way to help people identify signs of being trafficked and to empower them to make a difference. Our main audience is school level because those are the people that are most vulnerable to trafficking so from here, we're hoping that we have many open doors to go into school. We're hoping that the Department of Justice was also around this weekend and all of the media and the role players that we've invited, that from here, this is not going to be just an event, but it will be a starting point for us to launch the difference that we want to make in the community. Also joining us on the line is Marisa Dilange, who is a curator at the Monumental Freedom Park in Pretoria. Marisa, tell us how the Freedom Park is celebrating the National Human Trafficking Awareness Week. We are an art exhibition called the Freedom Exhibition, and we are exhibiting 44 works of art of 44 different artists. This is not only an art exhibition, this is also there's different events um, happening around the art exhibition. We are having workshops, so we're focusing very much on this theme because... The first week in October is National Human Trafficking Awareness Week. Marissa, who is attending this exhibition and exactly uh, what are you exhibiting? All the events are free. We have all the different art forms, sculptures, we have paintings, but they're not just paintings. That was Roxanne Rawlins, spokesperson at Traffic Troop. Traffic Proof, an NGO educating and empowering human trafficking victims. You also heard Marissa DeLange, curator at the monumental Freedom Park in Pretoria. They were talking to Komotomo Pulane. We Sani Makubela standing by with the headlines. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. A joint team of United Nations and international inspectors have begun to oversee the process of dismantling and destroying Syria's chemical weapons production program. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon strongly condemns Sunday's violence in Egypt, where more than 50 people were killed in clashes between the government military and the Muslim Brotherhood. And South African Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu says he feels sorry for God as he celebrates his 82nd birthday. A full update in 30 minutes. Thank you, Wisani. As malaria experts from across the globe are gathering in Durban, South Africa, for the sixth multilateral initiative on malaria, MIM Pan Africa Conference, the crucial question on how to increase efforts against malaria in Africa and elsewhere was once again hotly debated. This is with the need in mind to formulate new plans as the Millennium Development Goals are set to expire in 2015. Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari reports from the conference in Durban. The statistics are well known and devastating. Globally, 
About 3.3 billion people in over 100 countries are at risk of the mosquito-borne disease. 90% of malaria deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa, while 85% of the fatalities are children under five years. But, according to Dr. Rose Lege, Secretariat Chair of the Multilateral Initiative in Malaria, MIM, there is some hope. She says progress has been made in fighting malaria over the years. Dr. Lege has credited some of this success to the work of her organization. The MIM has also created unprecedented opportunities for interaction between scientists across Africa, America, Europe and Asia. From its first meeting in Dakar, Senegal, the MIM meetings have grown in size and quality, making it the convener of the largest malaria gathering in the world. What an amazing trajectory over the last 15 years. This strong pool of researchers, program managers, bilateral and multilateral institutions facilitates discussions on issues in malaria research and control, sharing of results from findings, sharing of best practices, and the forging of new collaborations. Malaria is said to cost Africa approximately 12 billion a year in lost wages due to the debilitating effects of the disease. The cost of treatment is also disproportionate to income for many. In Kenya, almost a quarter of the country's children do not live past the age of five because of malaria infections. In Ethiopia, a child dies every seven minutes from malaria, while in Zambia and Eritrea, malaria is to blame for a significant amount of adult mortalities. It's against this backdrop that South Africa's health minister, Dr. Aaron Mutualedi, believes countries must fight tooth and nail in order for the goal of malaria elimination to be achieved. I've just got one message to all of you as scientists, as researchers, and as health activists, we do not think that Africa in particular must continue living with malaria. We think it must be eliminated. And we think everything in our power must be done to eliminate malaria. History has shown that decrease in support for fighting malaria in areas where significant progress has been made led to a resurgence of the disease, potentially undoing years of effort and investment and putting millions of lives at risk. I asked Dr. Oles government, an expert in insect control, what his expectations of the MIM conference are, and this is what he had to say. And it's built into the program that MIM will be in the future of even more African-based organization, which is good, because there are many other four outside Africa focusing partly on malaria. And I think it's good that it will be a big organization focused on building capacity in Africa, which has always been the point, but is seen more clear now. And it seems to be built into the organization, which it was not. The 1,700 malaria experts and researchers gathering at the conference agree that if the momentum of the last decade is maintained, malaria could be controlled as a public health problem in most endemic countries. But whether or not the disease can be eliminated in the next two years, particularly in Africa, remains to be seen. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Mapari in Durban. 
The world is celebrating Space Week to mark the first mission to space by Sputnik in 1957 and the subsequent signing of the Treaty for the Peaceful Use of Space Exploration. Vaneshri Maharaj, spokesperson for the South African Space Agency, tells us more about World Space Week 2013 with the theme Exploring Mars, Discovering Earth. World Space Week is actually a global initiative. It started 14 years ago, and it was initiated by the United Nations. And there's two significant days that they highlight. So the 4th of October, 1957, was when the first Earth satellite called Sputnik was launched. So it's very commemorative on 4th of October. So they decided that would be the start of the week. October 10, 1967 was when they signed a treaty that indicated how countries on Earth could use outer space peacefully for exploration and various other uses, and that was on the 10th. So World Space Week runs between the 4th and the 10th of October every year, celebrated around the world by government agencies, by numerous industries, non-profit organizations, and obviously the general public that's interested in So this year, because we are the South African National Space Agency, we have identified three core events that we'd like to have that we share what we do in terms of the investment in space for the rest of the country. What has been the highlight of this Space Week for South Africa? Okay, so thus far, on the 4th of October, together with the Department of Science and Technology, we inaugurated a new in-orbit testing antenna facility. And what that's going to do, it's going to allow South Africa to get a larger portion of the support market in space. So we would provide support services to international space agencies when they launch their satellites or for satellites already in orbit. And that will allow us to grow our economy because that is revenue coming into the country. It was a very exciting event we had. We had the representatives from the DST as well as lots of key stakeholders. And we involved learners as well because it's an exciting thing for them to understand the service we offer but also identify potential careers within that realm of our space investment. The next event we're having is tomorrow on the 8th of October, and that is the launch of Fundisa Resources. This is targeting high school learners as well as students in higher education institutes studying anything from physics to geography to GIS. And it's a tool and resources that the youth can now use that brings space technology into their curriculum. So basically, it is the Fundisa disc, which we currently roll out to universities, but the new products are a Fundisa mini disc targeting high school learners. We will be piloting this at dinner lady schools around the country. It contains pretty much the same satellite data applications and tools that are on the Fundisa disc, but a lot more simplified for the learners. And then we're also launching a portal that will allow the engagement of the youth, so learners and students, with our experts on an electronic platform. It will contain resources and archive information that currently doesn't appear on the Fundisa disk. So it's an interactive portal for this. This will be launched at the Fundisa resource launch happening on the 8th of October. On the 9th of October, in our facility in Hermanus, where we have our Space Weather Regional Warning Center, They drive a lot of the space science and physics research. We will be unveiling a new Super Dawn radar. 
that will be transported to the Antarctic base. Now, South Africa is the only country in Africa that has a base in Antarctic, and this is where we do a whole lot of space science research. So we are studying the Earth's space environment from Earth rather than sending satellites into orbit for this purpose. And this radar will form part of a global network of radars. So the data they collect about our atmosphere, the electronic magnetic field around the Earth, all of that information gets fed into a global network. So it helps our understanding of how space weather impacts our technologies, how it impacts on our environment. And so this new radar is really exciting. It's latest technology, and it will be going off to Antarctic at the end of the year. So that's what will happen on the 9th of October, the unveiling in Hermann. Talking about this World Space Week 2013, looking at the next frontier as it is with the planet Mars, what could be said about it? Okay, so the theme this year is exploring Mars, discovering Earth. And really what it's about is looking forward. So looking into how much more we can learn about space, looking that in terms of our resources on Earth currently, we are putting a strain on it. We may then need to look at other habitable planets. The research now on the Moon as well as Mars is well underway. And just to let you know, in terms of highlights for SANSA and South Africa, we provided the support to the Mars rover that's currently on Mars. So when that Mars rover separated from its launch vehicle, it happened over South Africa, and our team in Hachabiasuk provided that support. So, I mean, you know, they would tell that relay back to NASA all the information data and whether that was a successful launch, and they did it, you know, at the highest standard of excellence. But now coming back to the theme, it's not only looking at maybe other planets and galaxies and looking out into space. It's also about using our knowledge about the Earth from space. How do we actually manage our existence on Earth as well? So it's looking out as well as looking back in on Earth. And so that's the theme currently for this year's World Space Week. In terms of South Africa's investment in looking out into space and space travel, Currently, that is not the priority. We will, through the SKA and the Meerkat, look at providing resource and research information in astronomy, so looking at other celestial bodies, stars and galaxies, and that information is invaluable as well. That was Vaneshri Maharaj, spokesperson for the South African National Space Agency, talking to Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa. Tavisolehuku standing by with our economics news. BMW says that the labor situation in South Africa remains inherently unstable, further saying it has no plans to reverse a freeze on expansion, even after car parts makers ended a four-week strike. Car makers are hoping to return to full production later this week after parts manufacturers agreed to a three-year wage deal with NUMSA. The deal gives a breathing space to an industry hit hard by strikes. The sector accounts for 6% of the GDP. The South African Reserve Bank has meanwhile expressed concern about the damage caused by labor strife across the entire economy. 
South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says the global community should fear the worst over the U.S. debt crisis and shore up its economic defences accordingly. Gordon has been speaking in an interview with the Reuters news agency. He says financial markets are getting nervous that the budget deadlock in the U.S. Congress may not be resolved before the end of October. That could lead to an unprecedented technical default by the world's largest economy. Uganda is seeking an investor to fund and operate its planned $2.5 billion oil refinery that will move the East African country closer to pumping reserves discovered seven years ago. Uganda hopes to become a top 50 global oil producer after Talo Oil and its then-partner Heritage Oil. The country discovered oil in the Albertine Rift Basin along the border with DRC. A senior official at Uganda's Ministry of Energy, Robert Kasande, says that the investor will take 60% off the refinery and the government will hold the rest. East African neighbors like Kenya have been offered 10% off the project to be hived off the government's share. South African cell phone users are ecstatic at the news that interconnect fees are set to be slashed by as much as 75% over the next three years. This was announced by the communications regulator ICASA, but it's bad news for the mobile phone operators um, of Vodacom and MTN. The two companies derive more than 5% of their revenues from interconnect fees. The cost of telecommunications in South Africa is among the highest in the world. ICASA wants rates to be gradually reduced to just 10 South African cents over the next three years. A difference they'll make in one's pocket. Nigeria's central bank is more likely to tighten than ease policy in the next coming year, but it does not currently see a need to move. Inflation is running a little over 8% currently, but should fall in December. The bank says it is keeping an eye on the currency's exchange rate, even if it had been relatively stable of late. At its last Monetary Policy Committee meeting in September, Nigeria's central bank held its rate at 12% for the 12th time in a row, citing a stabilizing Naira and inflation. The US dollar at this particular moment is at 9.99 South African rands at 8.42 Botswana Pulas at 5.24 Zambian Kwajas. It's also trading at 0.62 to the British pound at 0.75 to the euro. Gold, $1,324 and platinum, $1,398 an ounce. Finally, brand crude oil is at $109.70 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso. We now cross over to Tami Kuza for our sports update. Thanks for joining us once again. In your sports update, let's start with Sokam. 
With barely one week to play the pharaohs of Egypt in the first leg of the World Cup qualifiers, Schalke 4 have ruled out Ghanaian international Kevin Prince Boateng from the Baxter squad due to a supposed injury. But to most Ghanaians, this is another trick by Kevin Boateng and his club Schalke 4 to deceive Ghanaians. After playing for the Blackstars in the 2010 World Cup, Kevin Prince Boateng took a break from the Blackstars with the excuse that he want to focus on his club because he can't save the national team and his club at the same same time. To some Canadians, this is not a surprise news because they saw it coming. Kevin just didn't want to play in Kumasi Stadium because he believes that the pitch is not good for his knees, says some of the Canadians, and they say that maybe he's waiting to play only one match for Ghana so that he can end a call-up to the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. The Football Association of Zambia FAS has announced the release of Havrena from the job of a national coach of the Zambia national football team. The 2012 National Cup winning coach has been offered a wonderful opportunity at the FE Show in the top league in France. A FAS statement said that the association held talks with Rena and agreed not to stand in his way. Following the departure of Rena, assistant coach Petris Buamwele will take charge of the Chipolopolo, starting with the international assignment against Brazil in Beijing next week on Tuesday, the 15th of October. And our bad news, the local footballer Kilihuati's future at Orlando Pirates looks uncertain after he was left out of the squad for today's match against Pumalanga Black Aces. Pirates travelled to Nesprit for a telecom knockout last 16 clash with Pumalanga Black Aces this evening. Lehuati has not seen any action for three months after claiming in media that sinister forces were behind his omission from the squad for the MTN8 final. The club captain was then absent from Pirates' Kev Champions League fixture against Esperanza, although coach Roger Desai insisted he left Lehuati on purely for football reasoning. But according to sources at Pirates, Lehuati's comments did not go down very well with the club boss Ivan Koza, and the veteran skipper was hauled before a club disciplinary committee. Meanwhile, Pirates administration manager Floyd Mbele insists that he is not aware of any issues with regard to Lehuati as he was out of the office preparing visas for the team's upcoming trip to Tunisia. And now in tennis, South Africa's Kevin Anderson is due to get underway in his first round singles match at the Shanghai Tennis Masters. And Matt Brown reports from Shanghai. Anderson is playing just his second match since a wrist injury curtailed his US Open campaign. He lost early in Japan last week, but will be hoping to rediscover his top form quickly against Romanian Victor Hinescu. Anderson leads their head-to-head meetings 3-2, and on a fast, hard court indoors with a typhoon causing havoc to the schedule, Anderson should prevail. Uh, for me, my primary focus though, is just to get out there and compete well and, and play my game and uh, and just look to get back into that uh, competitive uh, frame of mind. Obviously, I want to have a good week this week and also keep playing the kind of matches I want to be playing uh, in, uh, in finishing the year. Ninth seed Richard Gasquet and tenth seed Milos Raonic are in action later, with the top four, including Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, starting their campaigns tomorrow. And finally, with cycling, former Tour de France champion Kevin Evans says that he is unlikely to compete at the 2014 edition of the race as he concentrates on targeting a win in Giro d'Italia. Evans was among the Tour de France's oldest champions when he won the yellow jersey at the age of 34 in 2011, produced an impressive performance in this year's Giro d'Italia. Evans went on to double up at the Tour de France barely a month later, but finished far off the podium as Britain's Chris Froome won his maiden yellow jersey. Evans, who came to the cycling world's attention in 2002 when he almost won the Giro d'Italia on his debut, admits 
he has unfinished business at the race. And that's your sports update on Channel Africa. And back to Lulu Balungile Kapu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Kenya named Westgate Mall suspects from CCTV footage and UN inspectors begin destroying Syrian chemical weapons. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is P-Square with Beautiful Onyinye. I was feeling so sad because I was all alone. Was so bad. And there she goes. She touched my heart and said, Tebezina knows who go. Was so glad. The way she keeps me smiling, it brings me joy. She proves this love in the street. What a beautiful So you want I can fly away Straight to the sky Just you and I Girl I know the lie Can't you see You were sent for my papa You know you're my heart and my sweetness Is this love, is this love I don't know but I know what I'm feeling My God be my witness you're my princess hey, hey. The way she keeps me smiling It brings me joy She proves this love in the street Within my heart there's nobody else Make you give me your head Let me take you Let me see you. 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 Let me see
it's there in the back of my mind. All I see is her. Oh. Turn up the music, we bumpin' P-square. Number one in the game, and we gon' be here. Oh. Always making hits in my convict. Oh. We talking money, or you talking nonsense? Making slow love to my baby gal. Got them big trucks pulling up everywhere. You only live once, and that's the anthem. All your negative energy feed cancer. I can look into our eyes for my whole life. We can make love for the whole night. Huh. Take my hand, baby. Rose, I just wanna be a man, baby. Yeah, yeah.